as just one example of the dynamic polarities and the sweet spot in between that we so love in Chinese medicine, this episode explores the difference between responsibility and fault. How does our perspective shift when we consider placing or accepting responsibility as opposed to faulting ourselves or others in our attempts to explain outcomes that we do not like? Can we perhaps see responsibility as an opening to healing, to stepping forward into a better future, to repairing past damage, while fault keeps us mired in the past through toxic judgment and blame? What is the sweet spot between recognizing where there is room for improvement and slipping into a dead-end negativity? And what does any of this have to do with meditation, diet and lifestyle, karma, the spiritual marketplace, heavenly punishment, American litigiousness, Western and Eastern concepts of purity, and spilling hot water? This is the topic of today's episode of A Pebble in the Cosmic Pond on Responsibility versus Fault. I am your host, Dr. Sabina Wilms, joined as usual by Leo Locke, resident purveyor of multiple perspectives among the seven fools of the bamboo grove. In addition, we have Dr. Brenda Hood with us and Josh Painter, both of whom are fantastic practitioners of Chinese medicine and specialists in Taoism. Brenda with a PhD in Taoist philosophy and Josh as one of the eminent teachers of Taoism as a spiritual practice in the West. Before we get into the conversation, I would like to remind you to sign up for my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com connect to get notified of new episodes and other offerings. And please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you can, if you like it. Thank you so much. So this is a conversation that Brenda and I started, I don't know, a few months ago about the difference between responsibility and fault. And we decided pretty much right away that this was a really deep question. And we were going to invite Josh Painter to this conversation as a voice of applied Taoist practice. And for me, partly, Josh, because you, in conversations that we've had in the past, I've always been struck by the emphasis on ethical practice as part of how you practice Taoism. I, I think that an interesting way to begin this conversation is to consider the term, the two terms that we're talking about, not just the, the specifically um, responsibility and fault, but the general utility of, of, of these dyads that we see so frequently in Chinese philosophy, particularly in the, in, the, in the domain of Chinese medicine, and in Taoism in my case, where we see two terms that are sort of 
in a tensile relationship, a sort of bipolarity, a bipolarity that exists between two opposites. But in the tension and in the in that interstitial space is where there's so much rich ground for um, considering things. So in our case today, we have responsibility and fault. I think those as polar or ex or or the this concept in extremis is interesting, but there's so much to be said about what do we mean by these terms? How do they relate to each other? What does it mean to be in the space between these two terms? Can we be a little bit of each? This is the nature of yin and yang, for instance. And, and so I think that to be one or the other is generally not very possible um, because they're so it's such pure concepts to be totally at fault or to be totally responsible to be totally good or to be totally bad to be totally light or dark these types of things really interest me and and when we talk about cultivation generally what we're talking about is forming a um a less and less murky status in our practice between these two types of um places like um for instance in Taoist meditation, we talk about stillness and clarity, for instance. These are the two essential functions of our consciousness, but they need to be sort of like isolated for them to generate each other mutually. As long as there it's as long as there's a turbid status, we're sort of in a in a place where neither of them is truly experienced, but both of them partially are. What I'm interested in beginning in in, in terms of this conversation is what does it mean to be responsible and what does it mean to be at fault? Because I wasn't part of the conversations that you two have had, and I think that that's great because you can sort of introduce me to that. Yeah, Brenda, you want to start us out by giving well, some concrete examples, perhaps, or you know, the way we are in the world right now is such that you often hear everybody is at fault. It's, you know, his fault, her fault, their fault, you know, the fault of this person, that person, this country, that country. And it's always because things are not going the way that we want them to be. That things are, the end result of some action has produced a result that some person, some people, some organization, country, like it doesn't really matter, but whatever has happened is not what people want. And yet you very rarely hear the term responsibility. And the way that they are used in the world today is almost like they are synonyms for each other. And that's not to say that they don't have some crossover. The problem is, is that we use the word fault as a pejorative and a judgment when it doesn't mm -hmm. always have to be that way. And it creates this real tension between responsibility and fault because in my mind, the idea of responsibility is when I use that word, it's a feeling of stepping forward into your life and doing the things that need to be done and has less to do with the outcome of what your actions have been and more to do with the rightness of those actions. 
Whereas fault is almost exclusively focused on the outcome and a negative outcome. You never hear somebody uh, say, um, you know, it, it's your fault this turned out so well, except as a joke. You know, it's always mm. like, it's your fault that this turned out in, you know, whatever bad way it turned out to be. And I think that we need to start shifting the conversation away from everything is everybody else's fault and more on to the idea that we have responsibilities in this world that relate to our personal self, our family self, our public self, and any of these selves in a bigger context then can be described by the use of fault. Because it can't be that everything bad happens. It has to be that good things happen too. And I just wanted to open up this conversation to talk about, well, how do we reframe this such that people can see that fault and responsibility are not really synonyms and that they have very different actions on an individual in the sense that when you say responsibility, there is a certain emotional response. And when you say fault, mm. there is a completely different emotional response, which means that your behavior then is going to be completely different in response to the use of one word or the other. So, Josh, have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I really like the subtlety of this conversation. And I and it's interesting to me because it's one of the places that myself and and many of my students struggle with in terms of Taoist doctrine, which is that in in our particular sect, which is Longmen, there is and, and actually we can say throughout the tradition, all the way from the celestial masters or the five pecks of rice movement, there's a notion of gong and guo, which is merit and demerit. And even though the notion of cause and effect or ganying or karma has changed over the course of the millennia. Um, there still is, and always has been, a very significant relationship between merit and demerit and the outcomes that one has in both their health and in their communities. Um, and I, I, I've, I've struggled with this one of our practices is to actually track our merits and demerits. So at the end of every day, we go through um, an introspective inter interrogation of our daily ability to follow our precepts. And so we sort of look back on our activities of the day. We recognize the places that we have failed to be um, uh, embodiments of de. Um, moral power, virtue power, um, and we look at ways, and we we have to generate a feeling of regret to understand not just in some way some sort of guilty feeling, but we also want to understand the the variety of impacts that our activities have on our community and ourselves as an outcome for future karmic um, uh, effects, the the ripening of that fruit, as it were, and so. In, in that process, the, there's, it's very tricky to 
to not let the regret turn into resentment, to not let the regret turn into some self-deprecation, which is to say, to slip from responsibility into fault. Um, and I think that that aspect of the cultivation is very is actually the is actually the crux of the matter, which is how can we sustain our relationship to some sort of framework of moral efficacy without because we will fail at that ultimately and constantly. It's it's not about a success versus failure. It's about a constant attempt and trying. That's the notion of cultivation. Is that we're constantly tilling the soil of the self in that sense. So we, we can abandon these notions of some ultimate outcome and we just think about the process. But in that process, we have to be very careful to feel responsibility and not fault, to avoid blame and to instead utilize introspection. So those are, these are very different things. And at first, the, the, the Taoist student often sees um, fault rather than responsibility and they see failure rather than process um and i think that what you're pointing at is really interesting in the in in terms of chinese medicine especially we know from the from huang di neijing which is a great place to go for questions like this because of its philosophical there are philosophical structures within that text but the first question is really telling because this first question people used to the people uh, of antiquity lived to a hundred with vigor. Now they don't. Why is that? And Chibaw's response is that those people of antiquity, his first sort of foray into the answer is they knew the Tao, they knew yin and yang, and they knew the calculations. And that's really interesting to me, but it's not, he doesn't suggest that the people of antiquity had better conditions. He suggests that they had better understandings of the cosmos in general. And so health then is not contingent on, on surroundings, it's contingent on our undertakings, um, our ability to witness, recognize, and to observe patterns and to be within harmony with those patterns. And so he suggests that those people lived to 100 years because they were responsible not that they were at fault and being punished, that they took responsibility for their own outcomes. And I think that that's, that's really interesting because it doesn't say that people nowadays are corrupt and people then were not. I mean, he kind of follows up with a little bit of that. People drink too much, they have sex too much. Clearly, that is a part of his answer. But I think the original sentence in his answer is actually about responsibility and not about fault. He then goes into ways of fault too. Well, if Leo. you look at, if just before we get to talk to Leo, I just mm. want to comment that if you look at the whole idea of fault, it actually puts a stop to behavior. So that if you are at fault, then you want to avoid the behavior that led to that. Whereas if you are responsible, even if something bad happens, it doesn't mean that you stop that behavior. You just try and figure out, well, you know, what were the other circumstances that might have led to an unfortunate end? And it is more of an acceptance and an opening into future action than the whole idea of fault. Because fault is like, you're trying to put a period there. You're trying to put mm -hmm. a stop. 
because we didn't like this result and therefore we don't want to see it again and therefore the behavior that led to it must be stopped. And it leads to all these weird rules and regulations that stop you from actually moving on into getting beyond what the problem might have been. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, I really like where this conversation is going. And I want to bring in e- like an even more concrete example that uh, we have recently encountered, or I have recently encountered, because I don't know if you know, recently I put out a course on meditation sickness, right? So it's a phenomenon that I observed uh, for the last 25 years of people having negative side effects from all kinds of different meditative practice, whether it's Buddhist, yogic, Indic yogic, or Taoist, or whatnot. So this theme that Brenda is talking about comes actually from the feedback that I get from people sharing their own experience. This uh, This theme of responsibility and fault really came to the forefront because for some of those who have suffered from the negative side effect, they definitely went into this faulting mode of, oh, you, these teachers, these programs, you guys should have known better to help me better navigate these these tumultuous, life-changing and life-destroying processes. How come you guys didn't know, right? So that was like a, a very strong, faulting, sort of blaming energy to that. Which is, Which is it's a it's a sign of our times. Like look at the news. It's insane. And look mm. at all these trolls. You know, you can't get on the internet without trolls launching into you for some reason where you're not doing what they think you should be doing. It's just yeah. frankly, it's gross. And it takes us away from our humanity. Yeah. So so my inquiry there is I can totally sympathize with you know a lot of the uh, the immense impact these side effects have on people's life at the same time as I think as Brenda says could we reframe it as a, a point of exploration rather than saying oh this is bad you guys shouldn't have done it you guys should have known better to well the teachers and the programs themselves didn't know better. You know, can we have a larger, more compassionate space of of sort of responsibility and saying, this is where we are right now, that we don't know better, we didn't know better, and now that we know better, we, it's not a, a, a label of a closing end of a negative label and that's it and always sign blame but rather as a point of opening and say we really didn't know better and we still don't know that much better can it be something an opportunity for the world as a community to come together and explore this as an opening as an expansion rather than a contraction and a full stop and an end to the conversation. So what I like about for something like uh, and like a project like the Cheetah House, for example, the, uh, 
there is an acknowledgement, like at uh, which is led by Dr. Willoughby Brighton at the uh, Brown University, where they recognize that there's these problems with this meditation, and then they're gathering this this information and evidence throughout the world and cataloging them. And telling people, yes, there is this negative side effects from meditation, and we're having a very open、uh, attitude and place where we can gather this evidence and gather people, and let people who have had meditative、uh, negative experience to express themselves and be taken care of. So I see that project. Cheetahhouse dot org as a really positive response to. Rather than blame or fault, is taking up this responsibility and say, "Hey, there isn't any place else in this world right now that talks about this thing, and we're going to set up this institute. We're going to do this research, and we're going to step up into the world and research this information and help people out." I believe now they even have like a dorm to house people who are going through these meditative distress or it. Distress induced by meditation and really help people in a concrete way. So I think that is a really good example of not faulting, but really taking up the positive space of being responsible, saying that we now know better. We have a responsibility to gift the world with even an ever more expansion of. Compassion and caretaking. I think that your example is really demonstrative of the problem of using the words responsibility and fault. Because once somebody is at fault, like I say, it puts a stop to the behavior, but it also creates this this situation wherein. People then figure that they're no longer responsible because it is somebody else's fault,、mm. and so if it is somebody else's fault, then you don't have to take any responsibility for whatever negative outcome happened, and you can just live the rest of your life in victimhood. Okay. Yes. Can I, can I jump in?、Um, for me, the reason I got so excited about this topic is. Because I'm German and I come from a Nazi, I come from Nazis, and I've been dealing with this from the time when I was a young kid, and we'd go on vacation in Switzerland, and the 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 Swiss villagers would run after us and say Nazis, Nazis, because we had the German German access accent, so it was clear that we were Swiss German, but. German, German. So、um, a lot of, and and I was raised in a school system where Germans were blamed for the Holocaust, and we were dragged to concentration camp after concentration camp when we were in high school, and it was really traumatic. And、um, and then I, so my response was when I was eighteen, I moved to Taiwan and. Really rejected being German, and I raised my daughter in America, and I, I, I really didn't honor my German heritage very much because of that. I think 
exactly what you put, what, the way you put it, Brenda, that being blamed for something, I accepted, my generation accepted that blame, which was really, it was what our grandparents did. So it's only two generations back. And accepting blame means what the way Josh put it, you find, you you blame yourself and that puts a stop. It's like, whether you're blaming somebody else or yourself, that's that's it puts a stop to the whole process, and it puts a stop to the process of healing and growing from it. Whether you're the victim or the perpetrator, and um, I had, uh, how can I put this? It, it, another thing is the Wang Fengyi system. It's all about do not blame. So, so this idea that it's the way Josh put it, the individual actions that we take responsibility for, that's, it's such a simple message that we change the world by, by simple actions. So I appreciated both. I really appreciated, I appreciate both Brenda raising it in terms of the responsibility versus fault. And then the way um, Josh put it, and and this is something that I had to deal with as a teacher of the Wang Fangyi system, um, because in Western culture, we're so used to, especially as women in Judeo-Christian culture, we're so used to self-blame. And self-blame is, is toxic. Blame is toxic. And self-blame is really toxic. And where a lot of people go in this Wang Fangyi system is it's it, it, towards self-blame. If you are res- if parents are responsible for their children's if parents fighting with their partners, with their mother-in-laws, with their whoever, the 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 child expresses as physical illness the parents' toxin of jealousy, of judgment, of blame, of anger, all of these things. Where does the parent go with that when they're exposed to the Wang Fengyi system of cultivation? They go into self-blame, and that is really, really toxic and not helpful. So the Wang Fengyi system is the perfect illustration, I think, of of what the way the way Josh put it, and and I think I'm going to hand it. Do you want to respond to that, um, Leo or Brenda? Well, I just wanted to point out that the whole idea of fault and blame and judgment is really based. It's baked into our society because when you blame somebody when you say somebody is at fault, it creates an opening that benefits the individual, the outside individual, not when you blame yourself, but when the outside individual then has a potential recourse to benefit from that situation where you or somebody else is at fault. You know, I mean, that's the basis of a lot of lawsuits. You're at fault because... And so all of a sudden, it becomes something which is advantageous to certain kinds of individuals to constantly be pointing out this person is at fault for this reason and that person is at fault for that reason. And it moves us away from being able to properly take responsibility for our actions. 
And once you've moved away from being able to take responsibility from your actions, you immediately fall into victimhood, you know, and it creates all of these weird situations because you can never get beyond that victimhood or that situation or you did something bad or you're at fault because, as I said before, the whole idea of fault is to put a stop to things, and that means it puts a stop to change, good, bad, or indifferent. And it always leaves you in the position of being a victim, especially when you're talking about self, you know, we, the Wang Fami stuff. You have these individuals, maybe they did things that weren't ideal, but they did them for a reason, and now you go through the Wang Fami system, and all of a sudden it turns into self-blame. Well, what good is that going to do this individual? Because now they're locked into this stew pot of, oh, I did this wrong. Oh, I did that wrong. And they're still mired in the past. So it doesn't allow you to step into the present or move into the future. Comments? Yeah, I'm, it's interesting. This responsibility and fault are in some ways nearly synonymous. Not exactly, but close. And And I think that I'm seeing as we're conversing here less of a of of a um less clarity between these two terms and but I do think that in the the space between them we can come to an understanding like you're talking about fault is a dead end and responsibility allows for an evolutionary process and and I think that bringing it back um to Taoist doctrine, one of the important features, specifically again, of our sect and lineage, is an is is our soteriology. We have a very distinct uh, salvation viewpoint, which is that we, in the rebirth cycle, um, we certainly uh, do. The term sounds a little gross, but we do pay for our wrongs. But that is not a permanent situation. There's no such thing as a, a Taoist hell that is a permanent and eternal hell. That there is a reckoning that there are evolutionary or, or uh, rebirth potentials that are less optimal than others. And even in this very lifetime, the, the ramifications of our karmic causes will result in whether favorable or unfavorable conditions. But the fact is that though there is this resonance between our, our causes and our effects, in the meantime, there's always the potential for damaging those karmic seeds or interceding or intervening in these outcomes before they come to be, which is to say, Salvation is in our hands, in a sense, in the Taoist um, perspective, that we can take responsibility, regret our actions, commit to being better in the future. And in this way, this is the moral and ethical dimension of Taoism, that we're never hopeless. There's always this sort of hopeful perspective, because there's never any sense that, well, I've screwed up so badly now that there's no coming back because that hopelessness is where people make very heinous choices. When you expect that there's no redemption, that causes 
this this hopeless feeling to arise wherein nothing else matters because you become I've become nihilistic. And so should we be blamed or be faulted for something without any um sense of being able to repent for that or to change it or to make things better to apologize whatever like that then there's 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 an immediate nihilism that arises in the mind but as long as we as humans make available to each other the potential and this goes back to what sabina was talking about just now in her upbringing in her native country if we allow for people's regret to arise naturally and we allow for them to make changes and I'm not big on apology, I'm big on action. And I think that if we allow people to make the changes that are appropriate in rec- in, 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 a, in, in a way that's um, positively resonant with these past um, problematic things, then we have a culture, a society, a community, and a self that can all move in a way that is, is um, reparational, not, not stagnant in sorts of fault and blame cycles. We see that a lot today. We see obvious and justified indignance with certain histories, especially within this country. But if there's an unforgiving attitude towards towards these histories, if there's just a massive war of fault and blame, it's going to be very difficult for us to move forward. And I think that the communities that are in dialogue, that are in meaningful conversation. The healing that's taking place in those communities is is admirable. Um, and in places where it's just a fault and blame, it's just a stagnant um, relationship that will always be in the dynamic of, of um, uh, hatred or whatever. But um, anyway, I do think that on the personal level, as practitioners, um, medical, spiritual, etc., a dynamic acceptance with concerted effort toward change is a really important feature for us to have. Well, you have to be able to move beyond what was because it's not real anymore. It's just a memory. And if you carry the emotions associated with that memory, you can never leave it behind. Yeah. You know? Leo, yeah. do you have anything to comment? It's, it's really interesting from a sort of somebody who did not grow up in America, like coming into this system of... because. I think a lot of immigrants or outside or people outside of America would notice very distinctly and clearly that there is a very uh, different sort of uh, what do you, what's the word for it? Litigit? What is? How do you say litigit? Litigitous? What is it? Litigious, litigiousness? Yeah, litigiousness, right? About the yeah. American culture. Or the envi- the legalistic environment in this country is quite different from uh, many other countries in the world. For example, you know, 
people outside of America would actually laugh at the fact that you can actually win a lawsuit suing McDonald's or whatever from a scalding hot coffee that you accidentally, you know, whatever. That kind of, to that level of blame. Because to the people outside, especially for coming from Asia or Southeast Asia, would say, well, it's totally your fault. You didn't... <laughs> Right, you because you didn't know your your mom didn't teach you how to take care of yourself, not like around hot water. That well, would and, be the, and that's the, you know another aspect of this blame and responsibility. As soon as you can blame somebody, then you don't have to take responsibility for it. Yeah, you know? So to us, it's a very like mind boggling perspective to shift the blame so far to the other side because the asian reaction will be well you should somebody should have taught you better or trained you better to handle hot water since you were like 3 <laughs> how would you want to blame another uh, establishment for your inability to handle hot water so the asian perspective would be it's like this is just mind-boggling that you can do this and win the case in court. And I, I think from that foundation, then the society gradually shifts towards the extreme. It's like the blaming game becomes more and more extreme and, and hardened. So I don't know what you your observation is, is because I the last few decades, I see that that's polarizing even more now. What is your take or observation on this? For me, it's like it's getting worse. I think it's yeah, getting worse I mean, we, because somebody benefits. I mean, this woman that you're talking about that sued McDonald's and won $2 million because she scalded herself with a cup of hot water because she put it between her legs and then drove her car. <laughs> okay, you know, that. I mean... Two million dollars, that's insane. You know? Uh, I mean, she lost on appeal, just so you know. But okay. the fact the fact that she won at all is as you say, it's mind-boggling. But it means that people are going to try because it is their potential financial benefit or some other benefit for them to continue this. And so it feeds on itself. Especially now when a lot of people are really feeling that, you know, the economic stress of living in North America right now. Josh? Yeah, I'm, it's, it's an interesting thing for me clinically to bring this to the clinical dimension. When someone comes in and they want to stop aging, or when someone comes in and wants, to, wants me to make up for the fact they don't, that they don't exercise or sleep. It be, this becomes a very difficult conversation for me here in this, this, this tension between fault and responsibility, because I want to say, it is your fault. Um, but I can also say, it is your responsibility. In one sense, fault is retroactive and responsibility is progressive. It goes into the future. So to say, if, we, if we're on a timeline, I think that it is possible to actually um, to propose fault, because I do think that when people dodge the fault, like scalding one's legs is the same thing as carrying too much weight. 
that if someone is doing, if there are ways to carry a lot of weight, and I'm not suggesting that there is any blame involved there, but there are ways to carry weight where it is certainly our fault. I am one of the guilties in, in this sense. Um, and if I think I should go to a clinician to lose my extra five pounds and put it, make it their responsibility, I know already that that's a bad choice. I know that I have, that I could do that myself if I were doing the appropriate things that I know I'm avoiding. So it's my responsibility ongoing, but it is my fault that it exists. So I wonder if fault and responsibility don't actually relate to each other in a way that is temporal in some sense. Um, because I don't think that they're there's a negative, necessarily a negative connotation to either of them. And I don't even think there's a positive one to either of them in that sense. I'm not really sure here in terms of the terms we're using, if it's completely worth abandoning all notions of fault as a usable, useful sort of sensibility that we, not that we want to impose that on others, but we could impose it on ourselves. I know those things for which I am at fault. But I also know that it is my responsibility to make things better in the future. So I don't know if they're so... <laughs> I'm having trouble here. It's an interesting conversation. I think it's it's pretty subtle. It can be. And it's, it's so... It's in. a great conversation. And I just want to um, throw something else in there as a response to go back to Leo's comment about being looking at it from the outside as as somebody from outside of us culture i thought that was a really interesting it it added a little twist to our conversation that i hadn't thought of before um i'm thinking about conversations and and i think we should move this conversation to the perspective of healing so so i want to put a pin in your your comment i want to get back to that josh but as another dimension um, when we think about conversations about rape or domestic abuse, I, you know, Leo, I, I also come from a very conservative family and conservative background, and the approach in my, from my traditional culture would definitely have been a woman who wears revealing clothes, who wears a really, really short skirt. It's her fault that she was asking for it or that sort of thing. And I really appreciate the fact that in America, the conversation has moved on where, where, where that part of the dysfunctional piece has been removed from it. That's just what came to me when you said that. And I don't know how we can apply that piece now to the healing part wow if at all yeah yeah that i mean that dimension is really it, it's so hard to um because there's for instance in the example you gave about some the way someone dresses i mean there's no responsibility and no fault i would hate to have that conversation in terms of other than that there's only one person responsible when there's sort of that violence takes place uh, and they're at fault too. Um, and it's strange that in, in our cultural frameworks though, we may be blind to the fact that the blame 
in in that kind of in a, in that kind of violence could be acceptable to us just through the cultural framework or lens um which is really troubling that we might not even see for instance the ways in which we are um acculturated into fault blame responsibility when there could when, it, when it's not even possible that that person is to blame or is at fault and so it calls into question even our basic ability to identify these these um these things other than through uh the way we've been taught which brings me back which brings us back to leo's conversation on meditation sickness if a these methods that are being taught are problematic, then ultimately they will yield certain types of problematic outcomes. And so the, the meditation market is vast. I mean, there is, there are a thousand apps and classes and the beginnings and ends of yoga and this, and all kinds of ways that people are proposing meditation techniques. Um, some of which are completely unfounded in, in any traditional long-term experience, etc. And so this is like giving medicine without a license and without an education. Um, because meditation is medicine. And it's strange that we, as a culture, allow it to be um, sort of taken from completely unqualified practitioners, so to speak. Uh, and I think that that goes back into a very strange dynamic where blame is involved. When we blame someone for taking the wrong medicine that they were told was being given to them by someone who can be trusted, then we have a problem that's a cultural problem, that there are possibilities that we don't even know better, you know. And then how does that work? How do we deal with that? Uh, I'm I'm know, actually quite quite curious Josh in from your lineage or within your lineage how does how do you guys deal with this particular issue like do you encounter people yeah I'm very curious about that Yeah well it's been an issue in our lineage um for a long time and we can see it in the literature of of our masters pretty far back um but there are certainly authors who are overtly contentious with the methodologies available at their time and the problems that arise from those methods particularly li dao chun and we see there's a a clear problem that's existed for a long time which exists within the framework, I think, of, um, of the marketplace. And I think Brenda pointed at this before. Whenever something exists within a marketplace, when there's a, some sort of capitalistic sort of angle to it or something, um, once something is capital it, uh, it, in, and is commodified, I think that at that point, as in any version of a commodity, you want to sell the most that you can, and you want to produce them as cheaply as possible. And so, if something becomes commodified, I think, meditation included, necessarily, it's going to be a, a, a vapid or empty version of the real thing, and it's going to be widely available. 
And as soon as we see things becoming widely available for very cheap, cheap monetarily or cheap in other ways, I don't, I, this, that could be meant in many different ways. I think then we're looking at the potential for pr problematic outcomes, just like with medicine. If you find someone who's, pr pr you know, trying to sell a product that will cure everything and they will, it will do it for $9 a month then there must be something wrong there you know that's impossible that's a that's just blatant commodification there's no there's no purpose to this whatsoever other than as as a business venture and i think that meditation is no different if meditation is viewed as medicine then we don't want it to be something that's obviously and overtly um cheap and easy and we see that throughout the tradition this sort of uh direct confrontation with the charlatan teachers for instance is what they can be sometimes be translated or referred to as well charlatan teachers are not always necessarily cheap and easy there's <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure true enough <laughs> yeah yeah i mean in the field of qigong um especially i've seen some teachers that are um, not people that I would want to work with. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. when I was living in China, you definitely wanted to vet the teacher that you were working on or that you were working with because you were going to be inviting them to change the fundamental energy flow in your personhood. And that's not something that you want to willingly give to just anybody. This person has to be ethical. They have to have a certain understanding and an ability to see. I mean, once you get to a certain point in your Qigong practice or meditation practice, your teacher actually needs to be able to see what's going on in order to be able to help to steer you away from some of these Qigong psychosis incidences that can happen. Yeah, I think that's another in very interesting point is the the ecosystem of this these type of practice. They are embedded within a larger or broader spir spirituality. It's not a standalone, a plug-in to you know to us. Maybe oh well, you're when you're starting out and you're doing certain very limited things. Maybe, but as it deepens and it, it has consequences that that uh, ripple out into other areas of life. Once that happens, is no longer a standalone practice. It is it, it has to be considered uh, as a larger, much broader spiritual practice i think that's another reason why people get into trouble is they see it as an exercise it is you know it's just another item on the buffet but not as an integral part of one's spiritual development yeah right you definitely yeah. see that in a lot of people who wind up with issues yeah, because because it amplifies the 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 uh, the extra life force that's being harvested or being generated 
a lot of times we'll go in and or we'll stay in the body and the mind and amplify whatever uh, biases or tendencies that may not be so positive or regenerative. They could be dysfunctional. They could be a, 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 a tightening of something or a polarization of something that's already festering inside, which is not of our best to our best interest. But that get amplified. I think that's the part that doesn't seem to be talked about a lot. Is that we do have a lot of these habitual tendencies and karmic whatnot that. You know, if we look at traditional Buddhist or Taoist uh, philosophies and practices, there's always this purification processes. We have to acknowledge that there's a lot of undesirable things and dynamics within ourselves that we need to clean out and purify and learn to undo. But it seems like in sort of like a spiritual marketplace or performance-based marketplace. That's usually avoided because that doesn't make good business or branding, you know, or sell the part. It does not participate well in the process of selling. Yeah, it's, so. it's it's interesting because in the Western market, spiritual marketplace currently, there is a huge push towards um, methodologies or practices that are sort of anti-purity, which is to say. They're abandon. They're attempting to abandon the the innate and native forms of purification within Taoism and Buddhism, um, and there's a lot of talk about um, indulging our nature as it is in sort of like in these. There's a variety of terminologies for these methodologies. I don't. I'm not even aware of them. I, I don't spend too much time thinking about it, but I I do know that this is something that's talked about, um, and I think it's really interesting that. A lot of the work, so for instance, when we talk about internal alchemy, Neiden, um, there's a lot of there are methods that you can that are essentially internal cognitive um qigong, but without the underlying stillness and clarity that is the formed on the basis of a purification process, the fruition of those practices is is dubious at best. And problematic in the extreme at, at their worst, um, and so it's this it's this sort of like pruning or denaturing or or denativizing these these entire frameworks only to pluck the fruit from them and then to hand that to the student. I think that's where a lot of the problem exists in a lot of these these things, and at that point, the student is incapable of being fully and appropriately responsible for their outcomes because they've been given an incomplete system or a problematic system. So that way, I do think that responsibility and fault are also, again, pretty nebulous there because the student fully following the methodology that's being taught to them in good faith and, and in, in, in all of that uh, can still come to completely problematic ends. And in that sense, it isn't their fault, and it isn't even their responsibility in a way. So this is, this is interesting to me that if we acquire 
teachings, whether they be about herbology, whether they be about any medical methodologies or meditation techniques or practices, if we're if the teachers are faulty, and that, I, I like that that term is there, um, then there are serious conditional issues that take place uh, um, from that that can't be repaired. It's a it, the foundation is broken. Um, and in that sense, all negative outcomes are the fault and responsibility of someone else. And I do, I do see that as a problem, that in Taoism we deal with this, in scripture it's oftentimes referred to, we talk about the, in, in rebirth cycles, how one of the ways that someone can suffer is to be born in the right conditions, which is to say, in the scriptures, it's always to be born in China, not in the Manyi Diorong uh, barbarian tribes, which includes everyone else in the world. So you're born in China, and you can hear the teachings, but you choose to go with a heterodox teacher. And that means that that lifetime is, is misspent, that it, can't, it will come to no fruition in terms of elevating our potential for the next lifetime to come to realization. Uh, and it says, you will, you, will, you will subject yourself to the teachings of heterodox teachers, and you will go back down in your rebirth, in the next rebirths, into, into a, somewhere other than the human path, which is fascinating. So, here we have this example where millions of years of rebirths are wasted when we find and believe in and subscribe to the wrong teachers. And there, then again, whose fault is that? Is that the fault of our projecting karma? Is it, which is to say, did we set ourselves up karmically for that mishap? Or was it within that one lifetime where we had a momentary lapse of judgment and reason? I don't know. This is a really, it's always been an interesting feature of scriptures for me when we see these passages. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't know when uh when Sabina and uh, Brenda had the conversation originally and when um Brenda brought up this idea or juxtaposition of fault versus responsibility Brenda did you know or were you aware of that time that actually that's a the the how do would you say in Chinese because when I listen to you guys it's Zeren, right? Responsibility is Zeren. Mm -hmm. yeah. A compound called Zeren in modern Chinese. Zer is faulting. Zer mm -hmm. is assigning, right? Ren mm -hmm. is the risk being to, to take it up. To bear. So to, to bear, yeah. So I thought it was interesting. I wanted were you was that in your mind? Because to me, when I all of a sudden it just came to me, it's like, wait a second. It's the issue of fault and responsibility is actually um, condensed into this compound in the Chinese language. You know, the conversation between Sabina and myself took place, I don't know, a couple of months ago. Um, and frankly, I did not think of the Chinese at all at that time, because we were, of course, speaking in English. But you know, Chinese is such an interesting language where they, they juxtapose these terms. And if you dig deeper into them, you get these really 
wonderful juxtapositions, but then in modern times, you don't actually think about the composition of it because now it's become melded into a singular meaning. Yes, yes. It becomes atomic. That's how I like to say it becomes atomic. And as as modern Chinese native speakers, we don't we don't actually dive into the original compositions anymore. We just see Zerin as one atomic compound. Yeah. But when we but as we're having this conversation, all of a sudden it just came to me like, wait a second, it's already embedded. This idea is or this juxtaposition is actually embedded in the compound, but we never talked about them. Especially native speakers will never dive into these type of conversation because we don't look beyond that which we we take we take as automatic anymore. Yeah, I mean, right? It's a single singular meaning to us. It's responsibility. Yeah, I really like the way. Josh started out the conversation talking about the liminal spaces, that interspace between concepts and ideas, and exploring that as a way of bringing clarity and as a way of delving deeper into these two aspects of what we were looking at. And it, you know, one of the reasons I like Chinese so much is that it does that all the time. It's just that the vast majority of people are not conscious of it anymore, especially native speakers of Chinese. It's when you have people who are non-native speakers that are like really trying to figure out this, this crazy, amazing language that you kind of delve into it and you really look at it and, you know, think about, oh, this juxtaposition here and all of a sudden it means this interesting concept. And it's new and it's exciting for individuals like myself to explore those kinds of things. But, you know, I thank you for bringing up this idea that the, in the Chinese, it has this very interesting tension between the two sides of it. And Josh, it was, you know, the whole idea of the interspaces between things is such a Taoist idea. I love it. Hmm. You know. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please help us spread the word. And last, but definitely not least, go out there and spread some positive vibrations between heaven and earth.